Hey, uh, welcome everybody. Welcome. Rather than, hey, I got a welcome. See, I kind of like that. Rather than uh, just pick one passage this morning and really dive uh, into that one, we're going to it's maybe like pick a bouquet of uh, scriptures today, and then we're going to spend some time with a number of them, sitting with them, and answering a few questions for ourselves. Pause and reflect. So uh, everyone is going to need a piece of paper and a pen. Maybe you've already brought your own. If not, they're back there on that welcome table uh, right beside those red shirts. So if you didn't grab one, now would be the time. Uh, we're going we're gonna to spend a little bit of time reflecting on some passages in a, well, a reflective way. So uh, let's go ahead and just jump in. Let's get started. Romans 12, 9 through 16 is what we're going to start with today. And so let's just, uh, let's, just, let's just read and then we can talk about it. First of all, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, sisterly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. So we're going to leave this up here. This one's going to be the first one. So take out your little pad of paper and take out your pen and pause and reflect and answer the question, preferably in a written way. There's research that shows that when you write stuff down, it engages your brain in an even more significant way. So uh, force yourself to write if you uh, would be tempted to just think about it. What sticks out to you for whatever reason? And we'll leave it up here and spend a minute or two. What jumps out to you? All right, another 10 seconds or so. So part of uh, or the foundation of what we're going to do this morning is we're going to assume that God's word truly is and that he is alive and well and that his spirit really does want to speak to us not just in a general way through a teaching that you sit through and you heard a point that was probably good, but he wants to speak to you this morning in your heart because he loves you. So that's kind of where we're going this morning. We're going to practice it, kind of put ourselves in the way, in the pathway of where God tends to speak, which is through his word. 
So great passage. This is Paul writing to a young church in Rome about what it looks like to love one another well in the church, in the family of God. There's so much here, so much good stuff. We could spend a whole teaching on it, but we will not. Don't worry. So there's things in here that we want for our church. We want love to be genuine. We don't just want a plasticky Sunday morning-y Christianity where folks wave and hi and say, how are you? And you say, good, when you're not, and then we move on. We want real love, love to be genuine, deep, true love that walks through the good and the bad together. We want to hold fast to what is good. We don't want to get in bed with what's evil. We want to know those things, hold fast to what's good and not what isn't. We want to love one another with real brotherly, sisterly affection. We want to look to elevate and bless one another. I, one of my, the, the thing that I wrote down was outdo one another in showing honor. That's just, that's just, that sticks out to me. That would be crazy. Out, trying to outdo one another, not in being the best, but in showing others honor. That would be sweet. We want harmony. We want to live in harmony with one another. That's what we're going for. But man, it's hard. Harmony is a musical term. It's a musical term, right? Harmony is when you have um, multiple different notes, different notes singing a tune that weaves together in a beautiful way that's more complex, more beautiful than just one person singing alone. Harmonies add depth, but no one is singing the same notes. It gives room for variation and complexity. And that's how we can live in harmony with one another, actually, while we rejoice with those who rejoice and while we mourn with those who mourn. It's the only way. That's the harmonies of rejoicing and mourning. That beautiful song of God's love in the church together must include both. And it's not easy to do. I'm not great at harmonies. Sometimes I'm on backup. I'm trying to do harmonies. and I'm trying to find the right notes. And sometimes it's right. And sometimes it's not quite right. Harmonies can be hard. But when you hit them, it's pretty awesome. It's pretty sweet. So this is one way, honoring one another, rejoicing with those who rejoice, mourning with those who mourn. This is one way we can keep taking steps forward as a church, to hold space for both. To hold space for rejoicing, it's right that we would do that. And to hold space for mourning together when appropriate, it's right that we do that too. So it's one way that we can even submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So let's start with rejoicing today. Mother's Day, it's an opportunity for us to rejoice and to mourn. We're going to try to do those well together, to sing a harmony together this morning. So we need to do justice to both. So rejoicing, it is right that we rejoice and celebrate and honor mothers. Amen? I heard three amens. We'll work on that. It is right that we honor and celebrate mothers. No matter what else needs to be done, we need to celebrate and honor. It's good. It's right. Because mothering is good and hard work. I don't need to tell you guys this, especially mothers, especially mothers of young kids maybe. I don't need to tell you this. It's a lot of hard work. The time, the food, the lessons, the extra cleaning, the child care, all of the stuff, the sleepless nights, but it's good work. Often thankless, but good, it's good work. At root, mothering is discipleship, especially for those who know Christ. It's helping younger ones grow up, not just in their ability to do things, but to understand what it means to become mature 
and understand God's love for them and find their place in God's kingdom. So root mothering is discipleship. Teaching your sons and daughters what it looks like to grow up in God. So it's right to remember and to give thanks for mothers, even if we have a lot of baggage with our own mothers. At the very least, they gave us life, and that's not nothing. So we need to rejoice. We need to celebrate and give honor where it's due. And so we're going to do something uh, maybe a little different. Anyone who's a mother, stay seated. Anyone else, stand up, and we're going to clap to honor mothers. It's right that we would do so. So would you stand up with me and clap? Thank you, mothers. Come on, I can see it. We don't do this enough. It's at least to start. Mothers deserve to be honored. That's right. I tend to be the last clapper whenever there's a clapping thing in church. I love that. Man, was that you, Dylan? Man, that's going to that's going to bug me. All right, but along with the melody line of rejoicing, it's also right that mingled with that would be the harmony of mourning. Right, especially on Mother's Day. Mother's Day is also an opportunity to mourn with those who mourn. Those, for many reasons, who would mourn on Mother's Day, those who desperately long to be mothers and are not. And Mother's Day brings that back with a sharp tinge. Maybe they're not married and wish they were. Maybe you are or have struggled with infertility, and Mother's Day feels like a slap in the face. We've struggled with that at times. Miscarriage, those who struggle with miscarriage, Mother's Day's hard because it brings back what could have been and what is so painful. Through the death of a child in that way or another way, or maybe mothers, it brings back how you're estranged from your kids through whatever circumstance. The waywardness of your child, maybe through divorce, mangling, the mother-child relationship, those with unresolved traumas with their own mothers, that brings back up stuff. And so I know many in this room, as I look out, and many who uh, are joining us online, I'm sure, Mother's Day is hard. And you have many of these things. And so this, this morning, you come in and you're struggling to mourn. You mourn today because it's Mother's Day. And so as a church, it's right that we mourn with you just as much as we celebrate Mothers, we need to mourn with you and to sing that harmony together. And so this is a potential for maybe a unique, holy moment in our church to celebrate, to rejoice, and to mourn. It's not easy, but it's right and it's good. So whether you're here this morning coming in rejoicing or mourning or a thousand shades in between, I just want you to say, or I want to say to you, you are welcome, you are seen, you are heard and you're loved, and it's okay where you are, and that we want to hold space for all of us, and that God knows, and that maybe even we could sing together in a more beautiful harmony because of it. So what does it look like to rejoice and to mourn together? To do that, we have to get back to the foundation. We have to be singing the same song. We gotta be singing the same song, otherwise the harmonies are gonna fall flat or sharper. You're gonna be singing something different. So the next passage we're going to chew on together, we're going to go back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 2. 
We're going to start in verse 5. We're going to skip around a little bit. Starting in verse 5. All the way back to the beginning. When no bush of the field was yet in hand, or in the land, when no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. In the very beginning, then the Lord God formed the man. Literally, the word there is Adam. Formed Adam, the man. Formed human. Formed human out of the dust of the ground and breathed. God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature for the first time. Skipping down to 18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. Just a little side note here, this word helper, it's not as sometimes you can read it in the, in the English when we translate that word as someone who's a helper, but maybe even less than. This is a very honored term. It's the word paraclete. It's the same word that God uh, uses for his Holy Spirit when he comes alongside and helps us. It's a very high word. This is no second-class citizen. This is wonderful. This is high and noble and honored. I will make a helper fit for him, corresponding to him. In verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs, then closed up that place of the, with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So pause and reflect. What do you see here? Write it down. Force yourself to write it down on your piece of paper. What do you see? What sticks out to you? What's going on in your soul? Oftentimes what sticks out is what the Lord is trying to speak to you about. Take a few minutes. Take another 15 seconds or so. So all of us, all of us, whether men or women, old or young, all of us were created ultimately not by our fathers and mothers, but by God himself. He's the one that breathes life and brings atoms and matter to life. He's the one who gives spirit and life. Ultimately, our father is God. God is our heavenly father. And at an even more profound level, those of us who have trusted in Jesus, those of us who have chosen to put our trust and faith in him, we have been adopted 
as God's sons and daughters into a royal line, God's royal beloved sons and daughters. Speaking of Jesus, John, in chapter 1, he says, even though many rejected Christ, but to all who believed in him and accepted him, who were already alive and in a sense God's children, but... To those who trusted in Christ, he gave the right to become children of God. They were reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plans, but a birth that comes from God. We are all born physically of God, but those of us who trust in Christ, our very spirits and our souls are born again, and we become his adopted daughters and sons in a very real profound way. So for the remainder of our time together, I want to invite all of us to come and engage in a slightly different way. Moms, I don't want you to come in right now with your mom hat on. You are a mom, and that's part of who you are. But at a deeper level, before you became a mom, who you truly are, I want you to come in as a daughter of God. That's the hat I want you to put on. So take off the mom hat, put on daughter of God. Maybe put it back on or find what it was like before you took off to put on this mom hat. Uh, Men, single people, this works for you too. Take off whatever hat you're wearing and I want you to put on it. It's very rude. Son of God, daughter of God. You're coming and engaging this morning as a child of God. And so that's why I'm calling this teaching today, mothers are daughters and everyone's a child. I want us to kind of move into a little bit of a different spot today and hear what the Lord might want to say to us as his child. God wants to engage with you as his daughter and as his son. Maybe you haven't heard him for a while. He desperately longs to speak to you. And this morning, perhaps in this sacred space, you could slow down for a minute, sit with the scriptures enough, and he would speak to you. You would hear his voice. That's my great hope today. So at the core place of our identity is where a lot of this stuff happens. Well, here, we'll get to that in a second. Don't get distracted. So our identity takes a hit over and over in this world. I don't have to tell you that, probably. But our identity, who we are, is constantly under attack. We're being told who we are and what our life is about. And I think uh, moms, it's especially hard. I mean, you moms will have to speak to that. But from what I see, it seems like it's not easier for moms. Especially for those who have young kids. But I think you can probably relate to the question, who am I? Who am I? Do I matter? Does what I do matter? Nobody seems to see or care. Am I a good mom? Or am I a failure? Nobody sees me. I don't really have any real friends anymore. Nobody really knows the real me. I'm stuck. I'm trapped. Maybe you've said a few of these words before. I'm not beautiful anymore. Especially not like her. I don't do everything she's doing as well as she's doing it, as well as Instagram says I should. My kids don't behave as well as hers. My house isn't clean enough. I don't work outside the home like she does. I'm not successful. I don't have a career. I'm not using my degree. What am I doing? I'm not 
I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Have you said I'm not recently? And we know that it's not just moms that say these things. All of us, men and women, young and old, we say these things. We struggle with these things. Our identity is under attack. And that's the main way that our spiritual, um, uh, spiritual warfare plays out in our midst. It's not primarily with bombs and um, exorcisms and all the crazy stuff. The main place we're attacked is in our identity. Go ahead and go to the Second Corinthians passage now, 10, 3 through 5. For though we walk in the flesh, Paul tells this church that's struggling with many of these things, we're actually not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds, and we destroy arguments. Arguments. That's spiritual warfare. Arguments. And every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God. And we take our thoughts captive, every thought captive, to make it obey Christ. This is spiritual warfare, daughters, sons. This is where you are attacked in your spiritual life, in the area of your thoughts, in your beliefs, what you trust in, what you believe. And the stakes are far higher than in physical war, believe it or not. The implications are far more dire because beliefs bounce, or, or, or well, beliefs sink down into our skin and they go down into our bones and they go down into our heart, into the place where we live or not. In the core essence of our being and our identity. And that is the ultimate goal of your enemy is to attack that. And he does it through arguments, through opinions, through identity propositions. Satan's aim is to attack you at a heart level and get you to believe something other than what God says. It's one of his most potent attacks. And even good things, good identities that aren't the best identities, they can be useful to him too. Your identity as a mom is a good thing. And it's good, but it's not who you truly are. There was a time when you were you before you put on that hat, like we've already said. Before, when you were a child. You could even take your identity from your kids. Kids are good. But they're not the best things. Your home, whether it's beautiful or messy, moms, even grandmothers can struggle with this. Your grandbabies, these can become an identity. They're not the best ones. All of us are tempted to take on an identity that might even be good, but it's not the best, and it's just as good for Satan's attack. Your health, your body image, how much you exercise, how much money you have, how much education you have or don't, how well you work or don't, or how much uh, your work is heading somewhere or not, or your relationship status or not, or how much friends you have or not. These can become our silhouettes of ourselves. These things that aren't the core of who we are, we can put them on on the outside and they become our silhouettes. These things that other people know us for. And then eventually we look in the mirror enough and this is what we see. The contours of ourselves that aren't our true selves. What you give your attention to will empower. That'll be what you see in the mirror. What you feed will grow and what you believe will hold you. Identity struggles are a hugely success successful tactic of the enemy. Not just to you individually, but as us, against us as a church. 
It completely eviscerates our ability to sing a song together, a gospel song that God wants to tune our hearts to sing again. There's no way we can sing a harmony of rejoicing and mourning together if we're not even singing the same song. If our identity is not in the gospel and in God's uh, spoken status to us as his children, we're not even going to be singing the same song. We don't know who we are and whose we are, let alone our part in the song. And so we're utterly unable to rejoice and mourn together. So next passage, and we're going to spend a good bit of time on this one. And I want you to get your, uh, get your pen and your, and your paper out. We're going to spend a few extra minutes on this one. Think about your identity. What sticks out to you as you read this? What God might be try, trying to tell you as I read this to you. Psalm 139, starting in verse 13. King David says to God, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion. As I was woven together in the darkness of the womb, you saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book, O God. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you are still with me. So, What might be God drawing your attention to here? Take a few moments and write it down. you're still going, we've got another minute or so, but if you've taken a pause, I want you to write down a sentence on your paper. I am a... I am a... And then write son or daughter of God.
Now I want you to circle it. Another question. How does it feel to take off all your other identities before God and come simply as his child? How does it feel? Write it down. One more passage before we move on. Isaiah 66, 13, God is talking to his people and he reveals his heart as a father to them. And he says, as a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you. So then the question, what are you holding? What are you holding that needs to be comforted by your heavenly father right now? What are you holding that needs to be comforted Maybe it seems too good to be true. Maybe you haven't admitted it to yourself. But if you listen, your heart will tell you. What does your soul need comforted in this morning? Thank you, God, for this time. You don't often slow down, at least I don't. One of the great barriers to rejoicing and to mourning well is hurt. It's wounds, it's brokenness, it's trauma. Popular word that just means hurts. All of us have grown up in a world that doesn't work quite right. Quite right doesn't work right. Things hurt us. We get hurt. Wounds happen. And most of the most powerful ones that shape how we start to and how we live as adults come from our young childhood years. Just, that's just brain science. That's true. A lot of us experience hurt. All of us experience hurt, wounds as a child that shape us. And we continue to hold them. Because even the best families aren't perfect. None of your parents were Jesus. They did their best, probably. Maybe some of them less so. Most parents do their best. But all of us experience trauma from childhood because we grow up in a world and in a family that was not perfect and for many of us, far from. And so there's big T traumas and little T traumas. Big hurts and little hurts. 
big T traumas, the ones we see, the big stuff. Big rejections, neglect, abuses, big scenes with harmful words that you still remember. Most of us have at least some of those, but not all. But all of us have little T traumas, little things. They're not big in amplitude, but they're big in frequency. They happen over and over and over again. And what neuroscience teaches us these days is that the little T traumas actually do add up. And they give you the psychological profile that is exactly the same as someone with big T trauma. Most of us just don't even know it, and therein lies its power. All of us have trauma. Difficult things. Family, generational curses, you might say. They have gotten passed down to us from our families of origin. We all have these. Again, that's not magic. It's just neuroscience. We inherit our genetic code from our families. We get passed down the cultures of our families, heirlooms from our families, but also our heredity and our genes carry more than we know. We've talked about this a few times, but I just find this fascinating. A relatively new area of neuroscience is epigenetics, epigenetic modification. What it means is that not just um, the hard coding of our genes get passed down to us, our genes, our our DNA, that tell tell you what your eye color is going to be and how how tall you're going to grow, unless you drink a lot of coffee as a kid, maybe, I don't know. We get get the DNA stuff that gets passed down. You kind of get your dad's nose, maybe your mom's eyes. But also, the way that our genes are read and expressed gets passed down to us. That's epigenetics. And that's affected by our parents' choices. Fascinating. The choices in our lives change the way that our genetic code is read and expressed. And that gets passed down too to your kids and your kids' kids. Actually, to three and four generations, between three and four generations, those epigenetic modifications get passed down. That means that you not only inherited your great-grandmother's chin, but also her predisposition towards addiction. Not only your grandfather's high blood pressure, but also his bent towards anxiety because of the home he grew up in. Things were not always safe. Not only your mom's tendency towards depression, but also the way that she chose to deal with difficult emotions through her divorce. All of these things get passed down to us from our families of origin. All the traumas, all the things. And yes, we're going to pass those things down to our kids too. And their kids. And their kids' kids. That means that your porn addiction literally will get passed down to your grandkids and maybe your great-grandkids, at least as predispositions. And there's a sobering aspect of that. So all of us come through childhood in our formative years shaped by many things. Many things pass down to us, some good, some difficult, and we learn to make life work. And all of us are coming into today with blessings and curses mixed in to our life. So as we kind of round the bases here, Let's settle on this passage. We've read it before. Exodus 34, 5 through 7. This is Moses, and God is coming and telling Moses his name. And his name ends up being a paragraph. I love that. God tells Moses who he is, his identity. 
And so get out your pen and your paper. We're going to pause and reflect on this one. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him, with Moses there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord proclaimed, or passed before him and proclaimed, this is God telling us his name. Just a word wasn't enough. He says, my name is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love for a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the father on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So pause and reflect. What sticks out to you? Write it down. What might the Lord be trying to speak to you through this passage of his word? Isn't this fascinating in light of epigenetics that we just talked about? God knows the generational things, curses, is sinful stuff. It gets passed down. We're affected even to three and four generations. But it seems like he's got a much bigger heart for blessing and love. It's not even worth comparing three and four to a thousand. In fact, God doesn't leave us with curses. His superpower is changing that which was bad and broken and sinful and terrible and changing it into good. In Romans chapter 12, he tells us what neuroscience is teaching us. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We now know your mind is it set. Your mind, your brain, your heart, you can actually change. It takes a while of dedicated effort, but you can change. Even the deep stuff that gets passed down to us, if it's engaged with in a loving and safe manner, it can be changed. And curses can turn into blessings. And we can pass down to our children, to a thousand generations, God's love. He wants to do that in your life more than he has. Our heavenly father is your good, good father. That's who he is. And he wants to change the legacy of what you've been given 
And even the legacy that you've already passed down to your kids, he wants to change it and to make it good. He can do it. Because all of us grew up in a world that wasn't quite right. But he wants to renew our minds and to change curses into blessing. One of the ways to look at the church is a place where we can go through reparenting. A, way, a place where no matter what we've had growing up, we can look at one another and speak the words of the Father to one another and slowly but surely we can be reparented and the deep parts of our souls and our minds can begin to change and curses begin to turn into flowers of blessing. We can do that for one another so that no matter whether you have kids or not, you can be a spiritual mother to the person beside you, spiritual father, sister, and a brother. We could sing together, weaving harmonies of rejoicing, even mourning together, and speak healing words. That's what we want. That's what we want. So that with the voice of the Father, on the lips of the saints, we can begin to hear and to process God's blessing. So as the band comes up, I want to start that process with you, slowly but surely, to speak God's words to you, to teach you, or to let you hear your true name, that you are God's child, you are his daughter, you are his son, and he loves you. He thinks more about you than you can imagine. He's proud of you. He wants to take away your shame. He wants to heal your hurt. You are valuable and loved. He is strong enough for you. He is able enough for you. He wants to call you his son and change your curses to blessing for a thousand generations. So as we end, I want you to pick one I want you to pick one, and maybe as Ben, you could get a little pads going or something like that. What is the Heavenly Father speaking to you this morning? And I want you to write down that question. Or maybe you would choose to pick number two. With what I'm hearing this morning, if I really believed it, what would that change if God really was saying that to me? Or number three, who needs to hear those words from God through me? Who needs to hear his blessing on your lips? So we're going to take another minute or two. And as the band plays and we get a little music going, I want you to pick one of those and write down some answers. Pick one. This teaching was recorded at Tallgrass Community Church. Because God first loved us, we exist to love God and love our neighbors. For more resources like this, visit tallgrass.church.